Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The irony is zombies made me and almost broke me because I wrote my first book, The Zombie Survival Guide, never to be published. I wrote it as an exercise for me in dealing with fear, dealing with demons. And what almost broke me was they tried to publish it as a comedy book and tried to market me as Mel Brooks Jr. And that was that was a disaster in the making. And I tried to warn them. I said, this is not a comedy book. I'm not Mel Brooks Jr. I'm Max Brooks. I've known Max Brooks for most of his life, and I've watched his life take unexpected turns. When someone is the son of Oscar-winning actress Anne Bancroft and the comedy titan Mel Brooks, you wonder what will emerge from that rich genetic soup. As it turns out, nothing but surprises. Max, this is going to be so great talking with you. I've known you since you were three years old. And I never thought we'd be having this conversation. You, you're still a young person, and you've had such an extraordinary career from writing about zombies to being asked to participate with think tanks like the Modern War Institute at West Point. Did you ever imagine that would happen to you? I never would have imagined that being 14 years old, sitting in Julianne Griffin's pool house with you, going over my short stories and giving me writing notes— that somehow it would lead to this. <laughs> I can't believe it. But you got famous by writing about zombies. How did you get to zombies? I, I don't remember you ever mentioning zombies to me until you had a book about them. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the irony is um, zombies made me and almost broke me. Uh, well, oh, that's interesting. Why? Because I wrote my first book, The Zombie Survival Guide, never to be published. I wrote it as an exercise for me, uh, as an exercise in dealing with fear, uh, dealing with demons. Because I was always a, I was an erotic kid, as you know. I was nervous. Uh, God knows where I got it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I was always trying to figure out problems. And when I was young and I saw zombie movies, they scared me so much, I thought, how would I really survive it? Forget Hollywood, forget movies and plot twists. If they were real, if the, if the threat was real, how would I survive in the real world? That became an exercise, the zombie survival guide, which I eventually got published. 
And what almost broke me was they tried to publish it as a comedy book and tried to market me as Mel Brooks Jr. Uh. And that was a disaster in the making. And I tried to warn them. I said, this is not a comedy book. I'm not Mel Brooks Jr. I'm Max Brooks. And if you try to market me as something I'm not, you'll disappoint everybody. And sure enough, that's what happened in the beginning. Uh, the LA Times gave me the worst review ever. Why would Mel Brooks's son write the least funny book ever written? <laughs> you actually are a funny guy. Yeah. But you weren't trying to be funny with that book. No, no. And the horror people, the other side of the genre, hated me because they thought I was Mel Brooks's brat uh, making fun of something they loved. You seem to be dealing with a threat in most of the things you write. What, what is that? You know, I think I come to fear and anxiety from a different point of view from most people. And I think I learned that from my mom. As we know, my mother had her, her neuroses and her fears. And instead of trying to deny them, she thought by studying them, she could turn the light on to the monster. And then she could mm. see what she was dealing with. And so that's always how I go about my my fears. If there's something I'm nervous about or if I'm afraid of, instead of running away from it, I try to study it because then I can see what it actually is. It's kind of like the, the last act in Jaws. When you actually see the shark, you know what you're dealing with as opposed to the first and second acts of the movie when it's just a, a nebulous threat in the dark underwater with music. You don't know what you're up against. So for me, knowing what I'm up against actually calms me down. It sounds like it was a far more personal experience than any of us realized. What did writing that book do for you? This is the first time I'm hearing this from you. Well, you know, ironically, in as an exercise in trying to survive something that was fictional, the process of writing taught me how the real world works. And I was very lucky. I had a wonderful mentor. His name was Alan Alda. And <laughs> one of the things you said to me in my, in my first novella that I gave to you is you said, listen, you you have your characters in your World War III novel drinking uh, Arab beer. And if these are Muslims, they can't drink alcohol. And you said to me, you have to research. You have to know your material before you can write about it, which means you have to go and study and do a lot of homework. And so I took that lesson and applied it to the zombie survival guide. Somehow writing about zombies led to being asked to join the think tank called the Modern War Institute at West Point. I, now, I assume that wasn't because West Point thought that we might be attacked <laughs> by zombies someday. What was that story? What happened there? It was a long road to get there because initially I'd gotten a call from the United States Naval War College. Its president at the time, Vice Admiral Wisecup, asked me to come speak to his inaugural book club and wanted me to be on a, a panel of problem solvers. Uh, and when I said, of course, are you sure you got the right guy? <laughs> are you sure you didn't confuse me with a Lieutenant Commander Max Brooks or something like that? He said, no, no, no. He said, if you take out the zombies, you have outlined the actual steps in a global crisis, which I had tried to do. You know, what? what's fascinating to me about zombies is that they're a macro threat, not a micro threat. You know, in every other monster movie, as long as you don't go to the monster, don't go in the water, don't go to the haunted house, you're fine. 
<laughs> yeah, but you here's, know, here the monster comes to you. Exactly. And ironically, in a zombie threat, you can be killed without ever having seen a zombie. That's what writing the first book taught me was you can die from what the military calls second and third order effects, like starvation, dehydration, malnutrition, infection, other diseases, because what the zombies do is they chew through the threads that hold society together. And that's actually what happens in real wars. Because in real war, for every one battlefield death, you might have dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who die because the war destroys uh, the network that keep mm. people alive. And that is what fascinated me so much. So that's why Admiral Wisecup said, you you get it. You get how these systems break down. I'd like you to come speak to my my students. And then from there, I was invited to other strategic studies groups. And at one point, I was talking to a group of generals in the Pentagon. They were having a listening campaign. This is when the Iraq war was melting down, and they were just throwing a wide net listening to all opinions. And I spoke very uh, intensely and passionately about the divorce between the American people and those who protect them and the shockwaves it was sending through our military. And one young captain who'd just gotten back from Iraq heard me speak and then said to me, listen, we're starting up a group called the Modern War Institute. Where we're really trying to study human conflict and we'd like you to be part of it and bring your perspective in. And that's how I got that job. So tell me about that. What does that mean to study human conflict? Does that mean to, to look for ways to reduce conflict before it starts? Part of it is definitely that. And part of it comes from unexpected places. Uh, the, the man who brought me in, his name is John Spencer, and he is a, an expert now, a self-taught expert on urban warfare because he'd fought in cities. And the reason he studies it is because the enemy knows the U.S. Army is bad at fighting in cities. Therefore, any enemy that wants to fight America will try to draw us into cities in which there will be massive amounts of civilian casualties. And I so thought it was jungles. I thought jungles was hard for us. It, it sounds like every war is going yeah. to turn out to be hard in a different way. Well, now it's cities because, as he has studied, the majority of the human species has moved into urban settings. We're out of the jungles now. We are now in these megacities all around the world, and every megacity is a different organism. And our enemies know this. And so his mission is if the U.S. Army finally gets good at fighting in cities, that will deter an enemy from using it as a battlefield. So what's, a, what's a, an average day like at the Modern War Institute? It's a think tank. Do you all sit around and think and then say what you, you know, just we, thought? What, we, how does it work? It's interesting. We write articles. Uh -huh. We give talks, and then we come together twice a year at these big conferences, and you will hear a, a massive variety of voices. You'll hear the the hardcore battlefield guys, you know, and they'll talk about how we need new uh, artillery systems or hypersonic missiles. And then you'll hear the cyber guys talk about how the electrical grid can be hacked or how soldiers can, their individual communications can be hacked. And then sometimes... You'll get a ringer. There was one guy who walked in. I couldn't understand why he was here. First of all, he was he looked very flamboyant. He wasn't even wearing socks. This is a room where everybody's either wearing a suit or a uniform. And, yeah, right. and he got up to speak. He's a journalist. And he gave a presentation on why the Chinese have bought a website called Grindr, which is a a gay dating app. Now, why would the Chinese be interested in that? 
because of their internet privacy laws, they have none. So the People's Liberation Army, uh, their, their version of the CIA, their intelligence network can scroll down every single person who's on Grindr and find a closeted American senator or American general and then uh. use that as what the Russians call compromat. So on the day the Chinese decide to invade Taiwan and some senator's gonna make a speech on the floor of Congress about how we need to defend Taiwan, he's gonna get an email and saying, we know what you're up to, we know who Eladio is, and we're going to release that to the Washington Post if you open your mouth. So this is very interesting. These are practical considerations. It's not, it's not uh, some far off future event that zombies stand in for. So what, what's, the, what's the bridge between that realization, that understanding, that bit of reporting, and action taken by the people who are trying to defend us? Well, this is because we're in a new phase of national security. Our new phase of how we face enemies who want to get America off the world stage all goes back, in, in my mind, to a war called Desert Storm where we fought a very big World War II-style uh, action in the desert, and we invited CNN there for 24 hours, and that was a war of deterrence. That was a war to show uh, our declining enemies like the Soviets and our potentially new enemies like the Chinese, basically anybody, if you challenge America on the battlefield, we will annihilate you. Look at our firepower. Look at our overwhelming mechanized force. So we thought that displaying that force would deter aggression. And the acts, the opposite happened. What we taught our enemies was, if you're going to challenge America, don't go anywhere near a battlefield. Our enemies for the last generation have been developing something called asymmetric warfare. Mm. And that is fighting not just with weapons, fighting with uh, computers, fighting with international trade and currency, fighting with information, how to influence minds and hack elections with ideas and misinformation. And what they're doing is weaving all of these asymmetric means together into cohesive doctrines. So the cyber guys are talking to the information guys who are talking to the Wall Street guys, and they all know how to combine how to hurt the United States. And they've been doing a magnificent job. And our military knows this. And they they understand it's time for new ideas, new ways of thinking. Uh, because we are as, as much at a crossroads now as we were in 1914, when soldiers charged on horses into barbed wire and machine guns. So I'm trying to figure out if there's an actual connection between ideas like the ones that come up in the papers that are presented at at the Modern War Institute, is there some connection between that and a change in policy, a change in direction of how we protect ourselves? That's, that's what these think tanks are there for. Once they generate these ideas and, and articles are written and symposiums are given, the, the hope is that those in power will hear them, believe them, and start to change our policies along those lines. Uh, and we are starting to see that. You know, if you look at the Biden jobs plan, a lot of a hardening of our infrastructure, not just the roads and the bridges, but also things like uh, protecting our, our infrastructure from hacking, that came from think tanks like the Modern War Institute that said that, look, our enemy doesn't need to bomb us anymore. If our enemy hacks the power grid, how many Americans are going to die in hospitals and traffic accidents? 
a hell of a lot more than would ever die on a battlefield. So mm. we need to think about things like protecting our cyber infrastructure from enemy attack the same way uh, Eisenhower sold the national highway system as a system as, of emergency airfields. Do you find that the way you think about your work as a writer has changed because of this broader picture that you're engaged in at these, at these think tanks? I really do. I really do. I feel that as a writer, my, my duty, my responsibility as a citizen is to educate as well as entertain. I cannot in good conscience just fill my work with empty calories. There must be some kind of intellectual nutrition for the reader uh, in a way that when they walk away from one of my books, maybe maybe they won't have a, a different opinion, but maybe they'll have a deeper understanding of how the world around them works. Because that's the way it used to be. There used to be something deep in everything. Perfect example, I was talking to the FBI because they have a dearth of cyber talent. And I said, you need to reach out and you need to bring in people who may not be full-blooded FBI. Don't give them a gold shield, give, give them a silver shield. Let them do what they're doing. And maybe they won't be full-time agents, but maybe just for a couple of years. And this, this FBI uh, special agent said to me, he said, oh, you mean like Hawkeye Pierce? <laughs> I said, exactly. I said, you need your Hawkeyes. I said, Hawkeye was a draftee. He wasn't regular army, but boy, he was a great surgeon and the army needed great surgeons. I love how I keep showing up in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back from our break, Max Brooks tells me how his mother, the actress Anne Bancroft, helped him overcome his childhood dyslexia by reading aloud to him and often recording the books he was assigned to read for school. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or, for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. 
Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Max Brooks. I've been thinking about the book that came out this year called Devolution, right? That, what, yes. that was this year. And I've heard you say that it's about adaptation and that pretty much everything you write is about adaptation. What do you mean by that? Like, what do you, How does it play out in, in Devolution, for instance? Well, on the surface, I've just written a, a Bigfoot book. It's a, the book, story. a book about Bigfoot. That's, <laughs> switched from zombies to Bigfoot. Funny, yes. you, you haven't left the corral much. No, and that, but that's what I do is I have discovered that people have a very strong ego defense, defense mechanism. And so if you try to bring these big, heavy ideas to them naked, you will either scare them, piss them off, or put them to sleep. So what I try to do is entertain first to get their attention. And then as I'm doing that, I'm teaching them something bigger. So with Bigfoot, it's the story of an eco-community, a wired-in high-tech Levitt town set in the Cascade Mountains. And these are, uh, you know, these are lawyers and teachers and they telecommute to work and then they go for a walk in the woods and they, they tap their phone and a drone delivers their lunch all the way from Seattle. And it's a great life until Mount Rainier erupts and they're cut off. And these highly paid, highly educated intellectuals don't know how to change a light bulb. And but also it sounds like they were cut off because they were served in all the important aspects of their life by technology. Yes. And now they don't have access to that technology anymore. Is that part of it? Yes, because what I was trying to do with the book was talk about the dangers of interconnectivity without insurance. So it's it's not it's not that you're taking a Luddite position against technology, but you want to back up to the technology. Is that right? Exactly. What I what I was saying in the book was all this technology is wonderful, but you need an emergency plan and you need an emergency system in case the first system fails. And the problem we have now, the way our technology is moving, the way our world is moving, is we're eating away at all these insurance policies because they're expensive. And that's what I'm trying to highlight is don't go back. I don't want to go back to the horse and buggy. I want my driverless car. But if my driverless car gets hacked and starts driving towards a preschool, I want to be able to pull an emergency brake, a manual 
analog emergency brake that will cut the power and save everybody's life. Yeah, that's what that's the the, the thought that occurred to me when I heard a couple of years ago that there were weapons that were I think already in use where it would be a long range missile of some kind and the last part of the journey would have its decisions made by the the software and not by a human and i thought if you do that without a kill switch where a human can have some control over the technology at a crucial moment Bring me up to date on that, because that, I, I was just talking into the blue. There's a lot of talk now about artificial intelligence integrated into military systems because it's much quicker and it's much more precise and much more efficient. The problem is if uh, who's making the decisions and also who's programming the programs, because they're still programmed. We're not at the stage yet where computers teach computers. It's still people and people are fallible. Uh this is an issue we're having right now, which is uh, like with facial recognition software in airports. What if there's a glitch and somebody gets pulled out and detained and it's just a computer malfunction, but you could ruin somebody's life. And also the, the, the AI is learning from what already exists so that a bias against someone with a, a darker colored skin, it's going to propagate that bias rather than see through the bias. Exactly. This is a huge conversation I had with the author, Annie Jacobson, who just wrote a book on uh, the growth of what's called the surveillance state. Uh, cameras everywhere, plugged into computers, using what's called big data to, to see if you can spot trends. And it's not good or bad, it's how it's being used. You know, whereas the Chinese, they're using it to develop uh, a trust index because their goal is that every citizen will be observed to a point that a computer will spit out an index of how trustworthy they are. And that trust index will determine whether they can get a loan, uh, be able to travel outside of the country, uh, everything. That's 1984, yeah. but with tools that were not imaginable when that book was written. That is exactly what the Chinese are doing right now with their surveillance state. Uh, whereas ours, we're, we're very messy. Some parts bad, uh, you know, racial profiling. But then again, some parts are also good because we wouldn't have had a lot of these police brutality cases that wouldn't have come out had there not been four cameras that are everywhere. Tell me more about adaptation. What do you mean by adaptation as, as a central theme in all the things you write? It's very personal for me because in every book I write, there's a character or a system, a group uh, that is living its life according to the rules and, and methods that they think works for them. And then they're hit with something, big change. And they have to either adapt and grow and become more than they used to be, or they will not survive. And that's every single thing I write, be it Bigfoot, zombies, uh, the true story of the Harlem Hellfighters in World War One, or Minecraft, the book about uh, a computer game for kids. I always talk about adaptation because that's been my life as a dyslexic kid who <laughs> was struggled in school and, and really the odds were stacked against me. Uh, I had to be adapting every day. It's remarkable that your life turned out 
so that you were a best-selling author, immersed in deep research for everything you write, and yet you're dyslexic. How did you manage that? How did you get from having trouble reading to, to being able to absorb all this material? That's, that's all my mom. My mom, I don't know, you knew her, you knew her as well as I did from a different angle. And, and she was always, I think she was so much smarter and had so much more potential than Hollywood would allow her to have. And so she took all that curiosity and that intellectual vigor and she put it on me and basically said, look, you're not dumb. You're not lazy. You've got something called dyslexia. We're going to have you tested. We're going to have you tutored and we are going to develop tools for you to adapt and get around the walls that this education system keeps putting in front of you. Uh, a couple examples. My handwriting was atrocious. And the teachers would always say that. His handwriting is atrocious. And my mother, well, first of all, she thought, who cares? This isn't 1894. She thought, if you, there's a new thing called computers. That's probably, if you want to be a writer, you're going to write on computers. So she forced me to take a typing course in the eighth grade. And, and I mm. did it. And so that was adaptation. Likewise, reading is so slow for me that my mother said, there's got to be a better way. And because she was Annie Sullivan, she played Annie Sullivan. She knew about the Braille Institute. She took all my books that I had to read for school to the Braille Institute. They recorded them on audio cassettes. So I listened to my novels that I had to read for English. And that got me through high school. Wow. At one point, I heard from either your mom or your dad that Anne was reading books for you over the phone if she couldn't get them done by the Braille Institute. Was that, was that also part of it or was that a myth? No, no. You know, it's, it started where she used to read to me every night. And when she would have to leave to go work, sometimes she'd have to go shoot on location for a week or two. She always made sure to finish the book that she had started on an audio cassette. So either in person uh, or electronically, my mother read to me every night. That's, that's such amazing dedication. But it's only that kind of caring about somebody that frees them from the stereotypes that, that you were mentioning, that so many dyslexic people are considered lazy or, or not smart. And yet you have all these businessmen who are at the top of their profession, a surprising number of whom are dyslexic. Well, you know, a lot of this I attribute to the Prussian method of education, which I've had a chance to study since then. And, you know, our method of education, which is rote memorization, regurgitation under a ticking clock, that was invented as a way of preparing our children to thrive in the Industrial Revolution, because the whole point of the Industrial Revolution was conformity and standardization. So how do we standardize our children's minds to live in this standardized world. And it did work for a lot of people. It didn't work for me, but it worked for a lot of people. Uh, but that's why to this day, you come up against people who should be intelligent and are highly educated and are idiots. Uh, <laughs> how many of us have come up against a dumb doctor who, if you come to him with something, if it doesn't, if it doesn't check his five boxes, he doesn't know what to do. You know, uh, a dumb businessman who can't see a recession coming, you know, uh, I've met really smart generals. I've met some really dumb ones. So educate, they've been trained to memorize, and that's all. That you can get to, be, get to be a general and be actually totally stupid. Although I've, I've met some people in high places who seem to, seem to be lacking uh, uh, enough to get there. But 
Maybe they're supplying something I'm not aware of. That's one of the things I teach at the Modern War Institute is innovation, uh, because I've studied military history, and throughout history, there have been innovators, uh, generals and admirals who see the way the world is changing and need to, to force that change. And so one of the lectures I give is on the creative process and the myth that the problem is finding creative people. That's not the problem. The problem is finding a champion who will fight for your ideas and get it up the chain of command. And one of the one of the lectures I gave was, ironically, something my mother taught me. The story of the man who invented the M1 carbine. Jimmy Stewart played him in a movie. Carbine hmm. Williams. He was, he was a bootlegger, a cop killer. Killed a cop, went to prison, and in prison invented a whole new type of gun and was sketching it in his prison cell on a piece of paper. And the warden said, what is that? And he explained it to him. And the warden said... I'm going to let you build a prototype in the prison workshop. And then the prison board found out, hauled the warden up and said, are you out of your mind? What if this guy tries to escape using the gun you let him build? And the warden said, I will serve out the rest of his sentence in his cell. (laughs) So he became the champion. Right. And so I say to these young cadets, I say, listen, if you find yourself trapped by a dearth of ideas, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, rack your brains trying to find the good ideas. They're there. You got them. What you've got to do is work on finding the champions who can get your idea past the department of no. What goes on between the person who wants to see the idea implemented and the person who could be its champion, who has the power to champion it that the original person doesn't have? What's the communication problem that has to be solved there? I have found the the first step in in this communication issue is identifying the sub-departments in the department of no. Why are these people saying no? And it could be the the sub-department of fear. You know, oh my God, I could lose my job. It could be Uh, the department of greed. Wait a minute, this is a good idea, but it's the bad idea making me money. It could be the department of arrogance. You know, I know better. And so identifying why the person is saying no at least will help you develop a coping mechanism. And to me, one of the best examples I found is Billy Mitchell. He was a general, and he invented the modern U.S. Air Force. In World War I, he saw airplanes, and he saw the potential. And then after the war, he saw that every other great power was investing heavily in airplanes, except the United States. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and nobody would listen to him, rebuffed reports. Uh, So finally, he put himself on trial. He got himself in trouble because he identified a new technology called radio. So he could leapfrog over the generals and talk directly to the American people at his own trial and explain to them what was going on. Because he knew the generals were not the boss. The voter was the boss. And sure enough, even though he was kicked out of the army, the voters heard him and they told their congressman, who then told the generals, hey, airplanes, come on. Because even during that trial, Billy Mitchell predicted that one day, this is in the 20s, Alan, He said, one day, the new rising Pacific power of Japan is going to attack our naval base at Pearl Harbor using airplanes. So where are the champions for the ideas that are coming up and don't yet have them? You know, we don't have a champion yet for what I call a cyber doctrine. As I've discovered with hacking, we have all the tools to stop the hacks. We really do. We're not, we're not in a, a space race for technology with our enemies. The problem is we don't have a strategy of how to use them effectively. And that strategy also needs to be international because let's say somebody hacks a hospital. 
Say, say Russian hackers a hack, a ho- hack a hospital in Great Britain just to steal the data for ransom. But while they're doing that, prescriptions aren't being filled and patients die. Well, that's an act of murder. And if it's one country on another, that's an act of war. And if we're allies with Britain, isn't that no different than if Russia dropped a bomb on a hospital and killed people? And wouldn't we be compelled by treaty to come to Britain's defense? So we don't have that kind of a treaty the same way we have for everything else. Are any of these think tanks that you're involved in dealing with the the essence of communication? Because how can anything get done? Using the example of Mitchell, for instance, how can anything useful get done without powerful communication? That is exactly what some of these think tanks are wrestling with because what what they found in Iraq and Afghanistan, the problem of insurgents and insurgencies, we're now seeing that right here at home. And so a lot of the lessons, the hard lessons that we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan have to be applied here. And one of the most important lessons is telling the Taliban apart from the Taliban sympathizers. You know, just like in Vietnam, the problem is you don't want to bomb the whole village because one Viet Cong is in the village because then you'll turn the whole village into Viet Cong. Well, it's the same thing in the war of words in our own country. If you call all people a basket of deplorables that you don't agree with, you're just going to mm-hmm. alienate them. And and you have to tell the the hardcore fanatics apart from the people who have legitimate grievances and don't feel they have any other options. And so I think that that's something that we're we're looking at right now. Uh, what are the legitimate grievances of people, and why are they being radicalized? I had uh, we just did a, a symposium I was on, where I heard a general saying, "Listen, with this homegrown insurgency here in America, these white radicals, you're not going to arrest your way out of it. We have to get to the root of why so many people join." Because there are some people you can't communicate with, obviously. The hardcore Taliban, Nazi Party, SS, uh, KGB, you're never going to convert them. But then you've got the average Afghan who just wants to get his pomegranates to market. And if the Afghan government's not going to let him do it, then the Taliban will. He'll go with the Taliban. So what are the pomegranates that so many of our fellow Americans are just trying to get to market? And why are they listening to the other side? Well, I've got to say, it's been fun listening to you. And I'm <laughs> saying it now because we're running out of time. But I've, I've loved talking. We haven't had a conversation like this in a long time, and I, I really have enjoyed it. Before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game? I'm game. What do you wish you really understood? Hmm. I, I do wish I really understood, uh, in the words of Robert Harris writing as Cicero, what is it that makes people want to foul their own nest? I wish I could understand the psychology of self-sabotage. Hmm. That sounds like another podcast. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I think that depends on the person you're talking to and why do they have their facts wrong? There's many different people. There's the person who has nothing but Facebook and is just getting Facebook. There's the person who's just angry their life didn't turn out the way they wanted to turn out. There are the people who are, who never went to school or went to too much school and didn't have enough life experience. So there is no, there is no one magic pill for different people because we're all different. 
Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, uh, two radio DJs in Texas on my first book tour. Um, how long has your father been dead? <laughs> That's great. What, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Leave the room. No explanation. No explanation. Just get up and go. Because they're still, they're still going. <laughs> they, they won't notice you're gone. Nope. Okay. You're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you've never met before. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? I say take a big risk and make a joke. Oh. <laughs> what, what, is, what will that lead to? Well, it, it will, it will do two things. It will, it will either let down their defenses and show you that, you know, you're as nervous as them and it's okay to laugh. We're fine. We're calm. We're relaxed. Or it will show you this person may not have a sense of humor and therefore the rest of conversation must be dealt with very, very carefully. Yeah, it goes, I thought you were going to say, and therefore you turn to the person on your right. (laughs) Okay. What gives you confidence? Oh, so much. Uh, I, 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 we are living in dark times, but I see so many bright lights. You know, the fact that for the first time in my lifetime, our government is talking about voter suppression. They're talking about social media uh, and how we need to regulate it. It's so wonderful to hear us finally talking about the meat and potatoes issues again that we should have been talking about in the 1990s. So it gives me tremendous hope uh, that the conversation is smartening up. Last question. What book changed your life? Uh, the Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. Why? I, I, first book I ever bought. I was 16 years old. And what changed it for me was this was a man who was an outsider like me. But, fat, but curious about a world and went and studied the world and made it realistic. He took all the, the, the Ian Fleming, uh, James Bond, psychosexual bullcrap and threw it away and said, how do real spies work? How do real submarines work? How does the world work? And when I read that book, I felt so much smarter as well as entertained. And I knew this is the kind of writer I want to be. Well, you sure have turned out to be that kind of writer. And you're so much fun to talk to. Who knew that that three-year-old would turn out to be Mm -hmm. you? I'm so glad it did. Well, you can take a good lion's share of that credit because I wouldn't have been that kind of a writer if you hadn't sat with me all those times and raked my work over the coals and sent me back to the well and made me a professional. And that's on you. You're too kind. Thank you, Max. I hope we hope we get a chance to be in the same room soon. We'll talk soon. Take care, Alan. Bye bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. 
Max Brooks wrote the Zombie Survival Guide in 2003, and its follow-up, World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war in 2006. That was the book that resulted in his being invited to join the Modern War Institute at West Point. His book, Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre, is also an audiobook narrated by, among others, Jeff Daniels, Judy Greer, Kate Mulgrew, and Terry Gross. It makes for great, if scary, listening. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Well, here's some breaking news. It turns out that Max Brooks isn't the only Brooks who writes books. Mel Brooks has just come out with a wonderful memoir. And I'll be talking with him about that and whatever strikes his comic fancy in our next show. If you remember, I talked with Mel and Carl Reiner in Season 7 when Mel told me how he and Carl created the 2,000-year-old man. Carl walks over to me with a, with a mic and said, understand, I understand you're 2,000 years old, and uh, did you know, did you know uh, Jesus? And I said, thin, right? Thin lads, uh, sandals, right? Hung around 12 other, other guys. They went, they, I had a candy store. They came into my store. They never bought anything. They, they asked for water. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thin, I knew, I knew Jesus. From then on, He'd go back in time. You know, how many wives did you have? And so, I mean, he never stopped pestering me. He pestered me into a million bucks. Mel Brooks brings us up to date next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.